uh, welcome to the next episode of The Leftover Thinkers. Today we will be discussing episode four of season one of The Leftovers, and the title is DJ and the AC. Do you already have a lot of theories about the title? I haven't thought about it much. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I read this somewhere, but like, I'm pretty sure it was, wasn't it supposed to be like Baby Jesus and the Antichrist? Okay, because I, I read that too, and I thought that seemed like a bit of a strange interpretation by someone but maybe it's one of those unconfirmed things but yeah definitely the baby jesus a big protagonist and a very obvious motif of the week that i have purposely avoided i actually thought that that it was very thematically cohesive in a way that i wasn't necessarily remembering and there's a lot of of nice things that were done with music and things that were done with uh, cinematography that i thought was really quite well done I remembered it as being an episode two sort of episode with yeah. just a bit of some bits of unconnected plot in a normal day, but actually the way it was drawn together thematically, it is almost similar to the Matt episode with baby Jesus being the Matt of the situation, perhaps. I feel like the, the, the story is split into two main strands, isn't it? But Clear. is it? But is it? Okay. <laughs> so I felt initially, which I'm clearly going to be proven wrong, that the storyline was split into two strands, one of which being the storyline of Kevin trying to get the baby Jesus back and managing all the Mapleton drama, uh, and then the storyline of Tommy and Christine, and that it was a bit more of a deeper delve into these two characters, not in as much extent as, as the Matt episode, of course, but like a little bit more detailed than, than the other two. What I'm going to throw at you for thematic coherence, how about Christine and Tom as a Marion Joseph story? I agree with it. Uh, it definitely seemed to be that way, that road trip storyline, trying to move somewhere. Do we know what direction they're going? Is, is well, it apparently they're going coast to coast, so they're going east. Okay. The fact that, you know, Christine's baby seems to be of importance. The father yeah, of the baby is certainly quite a revered magical figure and Tom is protecting her while not being the father of the baby. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that then, so if we have the baby Jesus figure of of the doll baby Jesus and if we're thinking about it split in two, if I'm going to keep my idea of them split into two storylines, then maybe we have the baby Jesus figure in Mapleton, but then what if the figure of the unborn baby is more of the Antichrist, right? Because we don't quite know okay. what Wayne's intentions are. There's the the bit with the guy who's who's got his willy out and he, he's shouting at like, oh, I know what's inside you. Yeah. Uh, and, and that seems to be very... Have you seen The Omen? No, but <laughs> well, Omen is, I bet is, that's not uh, good for yeah, the it's a classic horror film about a, a woman and, and she, she raises a family that raises the Antichrist and it's this like child figure that is the son of the son of the devil. Some of that language and that, that imagery of this prophet uh, kind of crazy mm-hmm. person who's like half nude and just starts going mad like that didn't seem to me to be a Jesus-y thing. It seemed to be more like an Antichrist thing. Okay, yeah. And I feel really silly because we were in the in the last of the spoiler section, the previous episode, 
where I was quite tired and dismissive. But like you brought up babies and I was like, oh yeah, I guess babies are important. And then this episode happened. <laughs> oh, babies are actually everything. So speaking of babies, let's start with the discussion of the episode. So the scene opens uh, with a close-up on this pink liquid bubbling. It's very bright. There's very brightly lit colours in this scene. Uh, there's clips of machinery and there's this really horrific image of the baby doll's head skewered on the machines, like rotating round. So it, it's a very macabre opening that's showing the creation of all these dolls. And then the, the dolls slowly get put together and then you see them being put into boxes and then uh, shipped off to different shops and then they're all put on the shelves. And here we're seeing the symbol of the baby Jesus being set up. Some woman from the community buys it and takes it home. So I thought that was quite an interesting introduction of this idea of this mass production of all these dolls, this one with the baby Jesus, which is interesting with the way in which meaning is viewed onto this, this doll, which actually has no meaning and is just a doll. It's a little sequence that precedes the opening titles and it goes Hmm. from you know the making of the plastic that will make the head of the baby to this woman buying it taking the clothes off the doll putting a wrap around it putting it in this nativity scene in the town and then we see a couple of days pass and then the baby jesus has disappeared i feel like this sequence is about resignification is about materials that become a thing which then becomes a doll and then the doll is bought it becomes something else it's just things being repurposed and being worked into another thing and did you catch the song that was playing over it yes of course i catch the song okay. so let's of course i've written down like several lyrics and like my readings of each of these lyrics <laughs> no it's just i just, i i, I find that funny because i was like oh Maybe I'm reading into this, but I just love the fact that you also picked up on the song. First, I looked up the song and I looked up <laughs> a series of strangers on the internet having opinions about what the song is about. <laughs> the song is I'm Not the One by the Black Keys. You know, th- there's a few lines in here that make you think about the theme of, of moving on from loss, of the idea of wanting to move on from loss of the departure. So there's one that says, uh, all these years, I'm just trying to warn you, you do good to move on. There's ideas of blind faith. Uh, so Wayne and the guilty remnant and trusting these people. So I said, jump and mama, you did. That idea of just following uh, these uh, different leaders that have cropped up in the post-departure world because there is this need for the faith in people. I like that. I was picking up on a slightly different key but that connects with that. The I'm not the one. It appears to be a song about someone who is in some sort of relationship and is being loved more than they're loving back or a lot of pressure is put on them to provide a lot of love and they they're not doing that and they're recognizing their shortcomings. So I feel like it is the baby Jesus that says, I'm not the one. Stop yeah. putting all this meaning on me. Stop putting all this pressure to provide something that I can't provide. And it could be the baby Jesus. And it could be a number of, of figures. Like you said, Wayne, a lot of pressure is being put onto these figures to bear a lot of emotional and spiritual weight 
people imbuing them with a certain meaning of faith and actually the realization that you know they are not the one in which you should be putting your faith in science as well right it's not just like religious or spiritual faith i think that the way that it works in the show is that what they're saying is that no explanation will completely heal you will make everything all right that it's not going to provide that satisfaction it's not going to fill that hole that the departure left which again relates quite directly to to the position of viewers in relation to the departure an important an important initial scene for sure so then we have the credits uh, and then we cut to uh, a zoomed in photo of patty on a police uh, board we can also see a few other bits around so like we see a picture with gladys's name on it as well yeah we've seen we've seen this board before in episode yeah. two where they they're clearly carrying on an ongoing observation of the guilty remnant in the town and i just you know already like the camera work in this episode is just insanely good this is another example in which like mm. the the camera is tight on the photo of patty and then it just kind of moves to the left and then actual there. And what what Anne Dowd accomplishes with her faith in this episode yeah. is also yeah. quite, so quite remarkable. <laughs> I've been literally writing down like all the possible adjectives to describe what she's communicating because she, she manages to go through so many different nuances. The way that she acts with her entire body and face and she's just like you forget that she's not talking because mm -hmm. you can read so clearly what she's saying or sometimes you can't and then you're like what are you saying in this scene i think we're seeing set up for the first time in a very obvious way this hostility between patty and kevin which yeah. will culminate in some interesting things later on but they they hate each other and i got the feeling here that Kevin just hates Patty. I think we've seen Kevin throughout the months that are supposed to have passed from the first episode becoming increasingly irritated and increasingly angry with the guilty remnants. The first thing he says is like, can I get you something to drink? Coffee, tea, some Drano, which is, mm. yeah, I had to look up, but it is not a pleasant thing to be drinking. And it's essentially hinting at wanting to poison her. And, uh, you know, he, he seems to be losing his, like, maybe losing control a little bit, losing his external control mm -hmm. of himself of, as, like, a good law-enforcing uh, person of the law. How many times can I say the law in one sentence? <laughs> Do you mean uh, policeman? <laughs> policeman! <laughs> Lawman person! He's pushing up towards the edge of the rules, right? Like, he's running out fucks to give. In this scene increasingly obvious how patty is just getting to him and he's yeah. trying to be detached and he's trying to put on an attitude of like i don't care but he is you know she's just pushing his buttons very easily in the scene yeah so kevin is talking to her about a holiday fundraiser that is happening tomorrow uh, in support of a new library at the school so there's a little bit of I say back and forth, but it's, it's, well, there is back and forth, right? So it's Kevin saying something and then Patty pulling a, a face and Kevin getting more and more annoyed. You know, Kevin's like, I, I take it you don't give a shit about the new library. Uh, and then he says, I want to ask you a favor. 
And Patty leans forward and she's really intrigued at this. She's yeah, yeah, she acts like... finally interested. Oh, oh my. And it, I, I detected a bit of mocking here as well. Like, yeah, oh yeah, my, yeah. do tell me. <laughs> what do you have to ask of me? Yeah. Uh, and so Kevin says, just don't, don't come. Um, if you do come, I'm not going to protect you, which I thought was quite an interesting thing to say. So he says a bit about how oh, it's the holidays, people want to drink, they want to relax, they want to sit down with their families. And then Patty isn't, she isn't so sure about that bit. And yeah, so she's, she's like, she makes a face like, oh, like, oh, you don't know. Oh, no one's told you this. And then she takes out a pad <laughs> and she writes down, there is no family. And Kevin, he, he knows what she means. He really does. And he just leans back just pretending not to give a shit, but clearly giving a shit and says, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, <laughs> in a really angry, but try not to be angry tone. And obviously Patty goes up and takes a picture of Laurie from the, from the board and shows it to Kevin. And Kevin knew that's what she meant. Like, why did you ask? <laughs> I stopped and thought about this for a bit because obviously we, we see it like literally in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. people's families disappeared. I don't know. I wonder if we think what it means in terms of yeah, I our, our ideas of family. You know, I think the, yeah, I think I think obviously it becomes clearer and clearer as the episode goes on, and obviously in the action that the guilty remnants decide to take at the end of the episode. But I I I just think that she means that people who used to be family members who used to have ties when they join the guilty remnants, they don't have those ties anymore. They're not our wives anymore. They're not our mm-hmm. brothers. They're not our children. And all of that. I, I interpreted it as that. Yeah, I think that works nice. And I just also thought that, that it was going to be an obvious opportunity for Patty to, to wind up Kevin uh, with the thing that, yeah, that really, you know, he's quite sensitive about. People want to drink and relax and sit down with their families. It's kind of showing it in his face. Well, where's your family? <laughs> Not yours. Truly. <laughs> yeah, so then she leaves. And then our boy Dennis turns up. Yeah, um, there's a nice sneaky bit where Kevin's like, oh, did it work? And Kevin says, yeah, they'll be there. And you kind of get a moment of like, woo, he's got one over on the GR. Which, you know, not sure how long that's going to last. And so it's very clear that, you know, this is a plan to get the GR to come and cause a disruption so they can go onto school property and be arrested for, for trespassing. Yeah. I mean, my only query about this, though, is like, you know, what did he think this was going to... I'll be honest, I don't really remember what happens in the next episode, but what did he think this was going to do, right? If it worked, he would just arrest them and then let them go? Like, there's so many of them. Yeah, I don't know if, if the action was necessarily designed to stop them in any permanent way because just to get one over on it want yeah just to to maybe yeah keep pushing them to do something mm-hmm. illegal so that he can continue to battle with them i don't know if he has it's a long term funny... plan here when we go back to the pilot episode where we see that kevin is very aware of, of what the gr are doing in that they're not trying to they're not going out and causing violence, you know, attacking people. Mm-hmm. They get people pissed off to such an extent that they are the ones that cause exactly. violence to yeah, and that's how they win, right? That that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to like annoy people and rile them. 
So I find it quite interesting that Kevin is just, it's almost like he's forgotten that, right? In this episode, like he's just letting himself get riled by it so much. And it really does show that it's just happened so much over this stretch of time that he's just literally lost it. He's, he's, he's had enough. And you know, Dennis is, is ever the loyal companion for Kevin. There was a, a really funny little bit where, where yeah. Kevin asks um, anything else and then Dennis tells him that they stole the baby Jesus from the nativity scene <laughs> and Kevin says, am I supposed to give a shit? And Dennis says, no. And he says, that's correct, Dennis. That's the correct answer. This, this episode was quite funny in place. Yeah, and I think the tone is, goes together with this theme of, of juxtaposing the supposedly sacred with more potentially desecrating, just supposing solemnity and seriousness with actually dark humor and meaninglessness. So I don't know, it might be bathos? Demystifying in some way. It's, yeah. um, it's like taking the mystery away, it's bringing it down. So maybe it is bathos. I think bathos applies more to the level of a sentence or like, you know, the relationship between two scenes. It's more of a close reading thing. But I think what we're thinking about is a more like episode level type thing. I guess it's related to an anticlimax, but it's not quite. I don't know if there's a name for it. Yeah, I suppose it's just this idea of setting something up to undermine or subvert expectations okay so okay. Uh, yeah so so kevin kevin calls tommy the numbers out of service and kevin expresses frustration at this and so then we cut to the tommy storyline and so he's flipping the smiley phone uh, he's clearly expressing some kind of frustration here christine looks at him and says don't worry he'll call Tommy is not appeased by this and he says it's been six fucking weeks uh we need him to call and they're in some kind of youth hostel yeah like a hostel or something Uh, and then a man comes in wearing just a a shirt and nothing on the bottom which I've once seen this referred to as Donald ducking oh yeah I have seen this referred as Donald ducking or Winnie the Pooh but not how necessary it was, except for HBO to confirm once more that they can show penis on screen. You know, everyone's awkward and like nervously laughing a bit, uh, but no one's really taking it seriously. And so the guy starts shouting at Christine and he says, why are you in my dream? Are you Christine? Why are you in my dreams? You walk over the dead. They're all in white. I know what's inside you. So this was the, the language that I was talking about earlier about how I was wondering whether it might be a little bit more antichrist than Jesus Christ, right? It's but seems- does the antichrist, strictly speaking, have a story about prophets predicting its birth? There's something in the Bible about the antichrist being birthed from a, a woman on a jackal, and when the antichrist comes, and it will have the the image of six 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 on its neck, and it will bring about hell on earth. Yeah, I'm looking at this now, and sorry again for any properly Bible-knowing listener, because we literally we are so ignorant of this, but Wikipedia seems to say 
Um, I'm finding this quite interesting. The Antichrist is the person prophesied by the Bible to oppose Christ and substitute himself in Christ's place before the second coming. So I feel yeah. like this is very much a reference to the substitution of the baby Jesus. Yeah. The idea of whether he should be replaced or not. Simply, you know, this, this birth, there's much agitation around this birth and it's yeah. not clear why the guy is saying this. And it remains unclear how the guy could have dreamt of, of Christine, maybe he didn't, or what he predicted, or maybe didn't predict. Uh, maybe it's a coincidence. I think, yeah, with this idea of the Antichrist, I'm, I'm kind of seeing what you mean in terms of, you know, the guy goes to strangle her, like he clearly thinks that there's something dangerous going yeah. on. And then Tom has to fight him off. I suppose maybe what I'm saying is not that the baby is necessarily the baby Jesus, but I do stand behind my interpretation of Tom as a Joseph figure. If the Antichrist is like a fake Christ, it would still have the symbolism around it signifying, oh, this is this is the birth of the Son of God. And like, this is Tommy thinking that he is taking on that, that Joseph figure and everything and, and looking at, and th that's what he does, right? He thinks that he's looking after the Son of God, but it could be that he's being manipulated or that, that you know, it's, he's misinterpreted and that it actually is this Antichrist figure. This episode is the risk of replacing the baby Jesus or <laughs> <laughs> possible replacement for baby Jesus. So the next scene is the teens at uh, Garvey's house, whom I kind of missed weirdly. Jill uh, frustrated me to no end this episode and I felt so bad for Amy. Jill was like, for no reason, just being really hostile and difficult. Kevin brings up this box of Christmas ornaments and she's like, oh, that's, that's granddad's, that's not ours. Kevin, to his credit, just goes, yeah, I'll, I'll look for the right ones when I, when I come home or something. Now that we're here, we could as well read into it. He wants the whole family tradition. Yeah. Like she doesn't want to like have a reminder of the fact that her granddad is locked up and her mum, that she wants to continue this tradition, like you say, because everything else has gone to shit. And she yeah, just wants to I have to say, yeah. I did a lot of psychoanalyzing of, of Jill during this episode. <laughs> Kevin asked Jill about Tom. He asked Jill, have you heard from him? Is he still in San Francisco? Do you, you, do you know anything? And Jill, again, is being just needlessly annoyed by the questioning. You know, it's his son. He's worried and he's trying to figure out where he is. And Kevin says, you know, I'm allowed to care where your brother is. And here I felt like, ah, Jill doesn't feel like she's allowed to care. That's part of it, I think. Kind of subliminally saying, Jill, it's okay to still care about members of your family. We don't yeah, have to adopt okay. this cynical attitude and pretend that we don't mean anything to each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, I told you I was uh, going to psychoanalyze Jill. Okay, it, it makes me like her a bit more, I think. <laughs> and it's much better than my readings, which were just like, fuck's sake, Jill, come on. <laughs> Stop that. Yeah, maybe, maybe I was this was coming from a place of, of trying to rescue Jill from being the worst. Amy brings up the fact that the baby Jesus just vanished. 
so we also have this language around the baby Jesus departing. Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. Right. So like this idea that the baby departed, which ties back with the first scene in which it's a baby disappearing, uh, that uh, statue that is revealed in the pilot, and it's a baby mm. flying up. Yeah. And we said that babies weren't that relevant. Then there's a little bit of back and forth uh, in which Kevin, who obviously is very much about bringing things back to reality, uh, he's like, no, it didn't vanish, it was stolen, right? So he's being like, it's not another mysterious event in which the departed disappeared and no one can find an explanation. It was stolen. It's a very grounded explanation. And so then Amy goes, oh, does that mean that it's the police's responsibility to get it back? And he says, as chief of police, that is misuse of our resources. And so he says, we're just going to replace it, right? And then Jill turns around and she snaps, that's cheating. You can't just get a new one. It's sacred. Continuing my psychoanalyzing of Jill, obviously we know that she took it. She wants her dad to tell her that something is sacred, that something is important. Trying to act like this symbol doesn't mean anything because she just wants someone to tell her that things still mean something. She's just being that kind of rebellious teenager where she's like, oh, let's desecrate this, let's desecrate that. And she was someone to, to tell her, no, actually, you need to stop. This means something. You can't do that. You know, this is sacred. You can't touch that. Whereas everything feels like it can, it can be taken, it can be replaced, it can be broken apart and nothing matters. Definitely. And, and, and also maybe a bit of anxiety as well, tied in with the fact that she worries that someone might replace her mother, right? Mm -hmm. Someone might replace her brother. Uh, she has these family members that have, have left her Mm -hmm. purposely and she feels lost and she worries that it's it's basically her telling her dad you can't have a new wife that's that's not allowed kevin just like looks right through her and he just goes jill did you steal the baby jesus yeah like kevin knows that it is jill who has stolen yeah. it he figures it out right away i don't think i did when i watched the episode i didn't think it was that obvious no. Knows. Which is quite interesting that like he can read her that well yeah. in this point. He can't read her at all at other points. That's so true. Yeah, he's clearly seeing through this. And so presumably it makes me think that he's seeing some of the motivation behind it, which is something to get his attention, first of all, because he's the chief of police. So it's mm -hmm. technically, she wants this to be his responsibility. She wants to see her dad restore something restore a family to its original shape she has taken yeah. a family member out of a scene and she wants her dad to go and get that family member back and put it back in its place yeah. he says like oh i'm going to work um i won't be doing anything about whatever this is which definitely feels like you know, your kid is thrown a tantrum and it's like, I won't do anything, you know, whatever you're doing, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't have time for it. Yeah. Yeah. So now we, we go back to the school where Lucy uh, is on the phone and she's getting the product info for the baby Jesus so she can get a new one. And so she talks to Kevin about it and she's just like, you just need to go out and buy a new one, Kevin. There's some really funny back and forth here between... I, I like I love all the interactions between the mayor and Kevin. She's saying to him, you just need to go out and buy a new one. 
And Kevin's like, a new one. And she's like, for fuck's sake, it's not the real one. So like, it's just like ongoing idea of replacements and this idea of this, the sacred Jesus and finding replacements. But here it's, it's used for humor. Kevin's like, well, I know it's not the real one, but like, I have better things to do. I'm a big, important chief man. Uh, and so she says, just, you know, buy it, rough it off a little bit and then pretend that you found it. And he says, why would I do that? And she says, because you need a win, Kevin. Kevin has been failing so much as the chief of police in the past few months that this is the only thing he can he can realistically accomplish. <laughs> yeah. So here we have the first turn of, you know, Kevin's relationship with the baby Jesus. You know, because he said to Jill and Amy quite casually that he's going to replace it. Then he seemed slightly surprised that Lucy was asking him to replace it. Throughout the episode, he's negotiating whether or not to attribute meaning to the actual baby Jesus, I feel. Maybe it's the fact that he was being personally asked and that maybe it's the fact that he was just going to go and buy a new one and it wasn't going to mean anything. But here Lucy is imbuing the act of finding it, even if that is just by going and buying it. She's imbuing that with meaning by saying... It's not that you just have to go and buy one to replace it just because that's what you need to do. You have to go do this because it is going to be a sign of you succeeding as a chief of police. Yeah, so maybe he was okay replacing it as long as it, when was, it didn't mean it anything. Was not a sign. But now yeah. the baby Jesus has become, become a sign a... for Kevin. And so he doesn't want a fake win. He wants an actual win. So yeah. he goes to the shop. He picks the doll up he's about to buy it and then he just like puts it down and then we hear him on the phone going no we're, we're gonna find it somebody stole it and it's our job to get it back so yeah i like this idea because probably the baby jesus means something different for every you know for yeah. the point is not what is the meaning of it the point is that it is a signifier that gets invested with meaning by various characters uh, and so I just want to briefly say here as well, his car breaks down. I did so notice that. <laughs> another example of electronics and mechanics failing. We go back to Tommy and Christine. We're introduced again to this other cult, right? The, the bullseye group. Mm -hmm. So these guys have bullseyes on their heads, on their foreheads. They don't wear shoes. The person with the bullseye on his head asks, Tommy, do you want a bullseye? It's so the creator can find us next time. You know, so that's pretty simple. Like, that's what they're kind of... Yeah, that's being, what they're saying. Uh, yeah, like, this is a way in which we can be raptured with the others is by having a bullseye on our head. I wonder what the shoes have to do with it. Because I don't want to anticipate too much, but shoes are going to be important. Um, but yeah, they are, they are some kind of free clinic that looks super rough um because clearly they can't you know they can't go they're yeah, in they the don't so they don't have insurance so yeah tom is doing quite a nice bit of victim blaming here oh, i hate him this episode he's awful <laughs> he is pretty awful and like in fact i understand he's under pressure and he's in a difficult situation but i don't understand so he keeps he's asked christine in the previous scene as well but he keeps asking her like did you talk to that guy? Did you say something to him? Why does he know your name? And then 
when she's, you know, here she's saying, oh, maybe I talked to him once at breakfast or something. And she's like, but what did you tell him? And Christine is like, it wasn't my fault that he attacked me. Yeah. Um, it's not. Yeah, I was I so glad that she said that. I think what Tom is concerned about is that he's scared that Christine might have said something about Wayne because she, she does seem, I suppose, a bit unaware of the danger that they're in. And she loves Wayne so much and she loves the cult so much that Tom thinks that she would just talk to anyone about it. But it's very yeah. uncomfortable the way that he seems to be blaming her. He's like rubbing her back, smiling and being like, from now on, you shut your fucking mouth. He, he's literally setting himself up as this awful villain. And she and she just seems so young as well, right? She's meant to be like fourteen. She's she's on her own. She's pregnant. She's she's gone through trauma, running around the country with this random dude who seems to be like a little bit close to snapping. Uh, she's just treated like an idiot that needs to be ferried around, and basically yeah. her value is because she's carrying some, some holy dude's baby, which has a very unpleasant gendered vibe which carries on in the doctor's examination right because again while this is while the doctor's thinking that tom is the one who attacked christine is somewhat a misunderstanding she does pick up on some vibe from tom so they're in this hospital room and um this doctor is doing a scan of christine's baby and Christine has this huge bruise on her belly. And then the doctor is ignoring Tom throughout. And then she asks her how the bruise happened. And then Tom answers for her. And he says, oh, this guy just attacked her. And then the doctor like looks at Tom's knuckles, which have like blood on them. And Tom is like, I had to punch the guy. It's not my fault. And again, it's a misunderstanding. But Tom is answering for her he has a violent vibe he's been very patronizing and there's a sense that there's this secret that she's going to reveal if he doesn't speak for her yeah it's it's so frustrating as well because the way that he reacts and the way that he answers and he's so nervous and so antsy and it, it so much sounds like he's trying to like cover something up but actually everything he says is just the truth and if he just mm. shut up she would have just said exactly what he said right some guy just attacked me that is the truth but he's so paranoid that she will say something about Wayne that he just makes it so much worse for himself mm-hmm. and then gets angry at Christine for, for that happening. As soon as the doctor leaves the room, Tom realizes that she's going to call the police because that was a very dodgy interaction. And uh, he tries to get Christine to get up and put her clothes on and run because the doctor wants to keep Christine overnight for for observation. And Christine, she doesn't seem especially keen to leave with him, which I don't blame her for. Yeah, I mean, for one, he's acting like a fucking maniac. And also, she's worried about her baby, right? Like, she's she's just been attacked. Whereas he's just getting increasingly frustrated and he's trying to get her ready. Uh, And eventually, he just pegs it. Yeah, like, it's just this idea that that all of the burden of the danger of the adventure is on him and she's being really naive. And if it was for her, they would just be dead already, you know, and he has this great sense of importance. 
that Wayne bestowed upon him that like he must protect her and perhaps this narrative is telling us that that is a very dangerous thing to say to a man so yeah he he runs and gives like don't tell them anything and then he he just escapes from Mm -hmm. uh you know the hospital staff chasing him don't come back (laughs) now we jump back to mapleton uh, we have the twins are back there rapping in the car and they see a guy uh, in a truck banging on the horn. They they don't know who it is. It's a kind of little bit blurry at first who it is. It's not like completely clear. One of the twins goes, dude, I think he wants us to pull over. And they do. And then it, it's Kevin. So like, obviously his car has just broken down and he's in this big truck and it's not clear that it's him. I thought at first it was the truck guy. Oh yeah, because it is a truck. Yeah. Is, so is Kevin I wonder whether that was intentional. The the truck that belongs to that is, guy. Is that what it is? Is is that yeah? That I makes wonder. sense. Because that would be interesting. Because when we're talking about what is the intention of these electronics failing, maybe it's so that he would be in that truck, and maybe there's yes. a little bit of blurring between the identity of Kevin and the identity of this stranger, right? Because we already had that in the second episode when it was there was uncertainty whether this truck guy was someone or whether it was just Kevin imagining himself to be someone and it was that trope of it was the same person the entire time it would be helpful (laughs) if we were at all able to recognize truck models but that is Mm. beyond my reading ability that is not my specialism (laughs) Um, but yeah that would make a lot of sense he had to drive in the truck with the blurring of identities there's something interesting here too in regards to his identity as a police officer right and and the idea of following the law following the rules so we've seen at the start like he's pushing at the boundaries of of doing what is right and then this is extended even more so towards the end when he ends up arresting the guilty remnant even though they're not trespassing right he's kind of being a little bit a little bit dodgy a little bit corrupt so here when his car breaks down he's not in a police car anymore and the twins acknowledge that by saying like oh we didn't know you were a cop you normally have the like wee 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 he's almost shedding that identity of this good guy cop because he's doing things that are a little bit dodgy here he threatens them he's like i know you hang out with my daughter did she steal the baby if you don't tell me if you don't get the baby back i will ruin your life so maybe this is the idea of he doesn't have He's losing symbol that makes him seem as this enforcer of law and he's becoming a little bit more corrupt and a little bit more driven by his own desires and wants. That's nice. I didn't think we were going to overthink the truck. I like that every episode is something like, oh, I didn't think we were going to (laughs) overthink that, but I guess here we are. (laughs) From breakfast foods to trucks. But yeah, he does say to them... As as much as he's being, you know, very unethical here, he, it is quite funny because he says to them, "Your your dreams of of getting high in college will will not come true because there'll be yeah. a mark on your record." When they say we don't get high, the next shot is so they've just denied that they know anything about the baby Jesus. They just denied that they smoked. Yeah. Weed. And the next scene is the baby Jesus, baby Jesus and someone holding a joint up to his mouth. Uh, and then the camera zooms out and we see that it's Jill. It was her all along. This scene is like the Skins Party Plus. Small town teens gone wild. They're all gathered around a fire in some kind of bit of the woods. They're just smoking and drinking and generally being cynical. Although here it emerges 
like it did a little bit at the skins party that actually Jill's friends are nice people. They're the ones who are the least awful. Yeah, the least awful, the least cynical, the least empty inside. So Jill's making the baby Jesus smoke a joint and one of the twins says, don't Instagram that. Like your dad definitely knows that it's you that stole the baby Jesus. Uh, and Jill's like, did you fucking tell him? Uh, no, he just knows he's not stupid, evidently. It cuts to Max uh, saying, as our esteemed guest was unjustly crucified, I am bestowing onto him a Roman soldier's helmet and he like tea bags the baby jesus yeah honestly max is just awful so max is yeah the guy who jill had to choke at that party is a completely dead inside awful person Um, yeah he's just gone off the the deep end (laughs) after no one is particularly impressed with what max is doing Amy, who also, together with the twins, seems to be the other sane person present <laughs> at this party. She says to Jill that she should return the baby because, you know, her dad has a lot on his plate already. Amy being nice and sensible. And that just really pissed Jill off. Like yeah, her Jill does not like that. That incites Jill to go and grab the baby Jesus and say, we're going to need some gasoline. And then Max is really excited about this idea. He's like, oh, Jill, you fucking legend. Like, oh, gosh. Max is is saying all this, like, son of God, king of kings, lamb of lambs, I anoint thee and pours alcohol or gasoline or whatever on the baby Jesus. Amy is clearly unimpressed. Jill is starting to look a little bit comfortable at this point, but she's pretty determined. She puts the baby on this floating device and pushes it out to sea. And then she's given, they just obviously, because why would you not have a bow and arrow at a beach party? Yeah, with like a sort of um, firework on it. I did not understand what this device was. She goes to fire it. They all start singing a hymn. What is it? Oh, yeah, Silent Night. Silent Night, yeah. They all start singing a hymn. They then start chanting, light him up, light him up. And she stops. So she's about to do it, and then she stops herself. And then the guy's like, oh, God, Jill, why did you stop? And she says, go fuck yourself. And then Max, the idiot, starts going, Go fuck ourselves. Go fuck ourselves. And yeah, then they all start chanting like, Just revealing that they are, their brains yeah. have been stolen progressively. It yeah. Appears. Maybe this is like a continuation of like psychology of crowds, right? And people grabbing onto an idea. <laughs> this is really going stupid. But like grabbing, grabbing onto an idea and like building your your ideology around that idea and maybe not really thinking of, of it. <laughs> that would be fun a cult based on go fuck yourself <laughs> maybe i mean is that not the guilty remnant <laughs> kind of it's showing that people are you know that people will hold nothing sacred people are yeah. bored people are numb and they're just looking for entertainment so yeah the other thing i was going to say is that jill is seems to be wearing a, a mapleton pd hat throughout this scene a sort of little nod about how this is all about trying to piss her dad off. And interesting that, you know, 
Kevin's loss part of his police uniform in having lost the car, whereas Jill has taken that item and, and like you say, she's taking the this symbol of law enforcement and she's wearing it while she's shooting the baby Jesus that the mm-hmm. police chief is trying to find. Next up, mm-hmm. we have Tommy again. So Tommy's sat on the bus stop, so he's left Christine inside, like the good caring friend he is. So, so he's at a bus stop and he's waiting for a bus. He's holding the phone in his hand and he's, he's also reached the end of his tether. He's very frustrated. He's waiting for a sign. Two members of Guilty Remnant turn up and so they pass him this leaflet that says everything that matters about you is inside. And he opens it up and it's empty. Lots to say about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain the, the scene so first. And it's a lovely bit of marketing from the Guilty Remnants, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it. he darkly giggles and he says, oh, that's clever. Uh, and then he's just talking at this phone and he's like, right, this is it. Now is your chance. Wayne, if you want me to trust you, if you want me to save the girl, you have to let me know why I want to go home. The bus pulls up. He goes, last chance. He's like, fuck you then. And then the phone rings he answers the phone and it's a recorded voice that's saying have you lost someone so many of us were affected by the events of october 14th we don't know where to turn and he just starts laughing it's like a marketing call yeah i i feel like it's for the is it for the dolls right that would make sense because it would be because the dolls have been signposted now quite heavily and so he starts laughing and then talking to the air and he's like, oh, you're a real good Wayne, a real fucking good one. And the bus drives away and it's kind of clear that he's he's read this phone call, not as just chance and just coincidence, but he's read it as a sign from God. From God? He's read it as a sign from Wayne. I don't that... think that is a slip of the tongue though, because I... No, it's yeah. not, is it? <laughs> I did really like this scene as much as it frustrated me as well because I thought that it was interesting in terms of the stuff we were talking about last week about the two boats and a helicopter right that joke about a drowning man and he asked God to save him and uh, two boats and a helicopter turn up and the guy ignores him and says no 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 God will save me and then uh, he dies and he says to God where were you and God says I sent two boats and a helicopter what else do you want from me that theme of people reading or potentially misreading or, or overinterpreting signs was so prevalent last week and I thought this was an interesting continuation of that idea right he has just read this random cold call as a sign from Wayne and he is imbuing it with the meaning that he is desperate for like he needs someone to tell him what everything means what he is doing this for the boat arrives right like the the phone calls and I think what it does I also thought of parallels with the previous episode and I think what it does it really equates Wayne with God in this episode yeah and really Tommy with Matt they're both looking for signs they're both reading signs so that's when I begun to think about the Joseph thing because Wayne, God, has put his sacred baby into this woman and Tom's purpose is to, you know, guide her to a place where she will be safe, which also means a lot of frustration for him, a lot of, you know, he doesn't understand why he has to do this. This is and the sign sucks as a sign <laughs> that he's been sent. Uh, but it's still yeah. enough for him, it seems because he just wants to continue 
to believe and something that I want to anticipate a little is this idea of a father figure as well so because I think we'll find out later that Tommy was abandoned by his real dad and Kevin um, was actually his his adoptive dad so there's something about fathers abandoning sons and God perhaps is the ultimate father and whether he has abandoned his sons here daddy issues daddy issues Mm -hmm. exactly definitely setting up the fears and uh, fears and anxieties that Tom has about being abandoned right about being set up as this person who is important and actually it turns out that maybe he he isn't that important what if he isn't as as important as Wayne is making it up but there's also in a way his potential role as a father or as a sort of father because he is asked by the doctor are you the father and he says no I'm like I'm just a friend and you know is he going to be in the position of raising a baby who isn't his which was Kevin's position yeah uh, and then I'd like to go back to the the leaflet as well then on the front saying everything that matters about you is inside so I mean this works on on several levels right Uh, so this idea that everything that matters about you is inside like inside yourself uh and then the joke of the fact that there is nothing inside so it's insinuating that nothing about you matters nothing about the individual matters there is nothing inside you that matters also something that i noticed is that it's tying back to the language used by the the donald ducking guy the the the, the prophet (laughs) guy Uh, and he says i know what's inside you Oh yeah. Right. So, so everything that matters about you is inside. So this, this, the baby being inside, uh, and then also maybe one thing that might be overreading it a little bit, but the potentially foreshadowing the removal of photos at the end of the episode, the blank image of of the leaflet. Yeah, I I think that the baby thing is quite interesting. That literally that applies to Christine, or at least in yeah. Tom's eyes, like everything that matters about her is fine. Yeah, I mean, if he's seeing himself as his father figure and he's wanted to, wanting to do better than his own father, he's not doing a very good job. No, at not all. at all. No. I guess all I'm saying is that it, it is possible not, again, to psychoanalyze another member of the Garvey family. Why not? <laughs> it is possible that this situation is bringing stuff up for him about his own father. Speaking of family ties... Kevin's uh, driving home, he comes home, he parks up, and Meg and Laurie, his wife, are at his house. So there's this very polite back and forth. Uh, Meg pulls out an envelope, and he's like, what's that? And then she starts to read from a sheet of paper. And so this paper is something that Laurie has written, and Meg is speaking it. It says, I can't say this to you, uh, but I won't just slip it under the door and slip away. You were a good husband, probably a great husband. You fixed my mess. You raised another man's son, even when he wouldn't let you. So that's interesting. That's, I think the first time we hear that, that Tommy isn't his uh, genetic son, mm-hmm. right? It, it seems like she's insinuating that Kevin was trying so, so hard to be there for him and to be a dad for him, but Tom was pushing him away. Uh, and so Kevin's getting a little bit frustrated. He's like, what are you doing? What do you mean by all this? Uh, Meg continues reading Laurie's letter. I need you to know this isn't your fault. It's nobody's fault. I was broken. I tried to fix myself for you and for Tom and for Jill, but I think I'm supposed to stay broken. Maybe we all are. Kevin is getting... Kevin does not like where this is going at this point. 
sees the writing on the wall and he is trying to erase it, but it's not going anywhere. Like, <laughs> this is not what he was hoping when he got those pastries out for them. Like, <laughs> and so he's like, what's in the envelope? Have, have you seen Seven? Like, what's in the box? What's in the envelope? Yeah. <laughs> Meg, bless her, tries to keep talking. She's like, oh, like, you're always the best shoulder to cry on, but I had to stop crying. And he just snaps. He's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, and, like, in all of this, he's trying to, he's looking at Laurie. He's trying to, he asking, he's asking her questions directly. And Meg, yeah. on the side, continues to read this letter. And Kevin is trying to communicate with Laurie yeah. and get her to talk. And, you know, and then when he gets frustrated with Meg, he's like, shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear this. I want to hear Laurie answer my questions. Yeah, I think we get an interesting insight into, you know, the whole guilty remnant idea, or, or at least Laurie's idea as a guilty remnant. You know, I, I was broken. I tried to fix myself, but maybe I needed to stay broken. Mm-hmm. She, she couldn't fit into the, the old family, into the pre-departure life. Maybe there's a callback to the splintered photograph. The fact that she has to stay broken, that doesn't mean staying devastated, doesn't mean staying sad. It's just, it's broken in terms of, to stick with a, a spatial metaphor, like she's she's a different shape, so she doesn't fit in this place anymore. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that she's wrong or bad or has to stay being sad because she's saying in the next sentence, I had to stop crying, but that she just fits somewhere else now. Oh, I'm loving the spatial metaphor, actually. And it makes me think of exactly this idea of the photographs that then comes back at the end of the episode. Mm. And what we were saying in episode two as well about Nora's stickers and Nora's photos. Mm. This idea of a family as a, as a spatial arrangement mm-hmm. in yeah. which some individuals are not fitting anymore because yeah. they've disappeared, because they've drifted away. But the enclosure of the family photograph has become obsolete because it doesn't represent the reality of how families work anymore. And I would add, probably it reveals that there were cracks already. That's the point. And I think we can, we can think about it later on. But I'd like to think of this show as taking the position that actually the departure has revealed that all the idealizations that people put in place they were actually not ideal at all what i also find interesting about the dynamics of the guilty remnants in this is this idea of meg reading the letter for laurie if we come back to this idea of the ego and how the ego is you know you need to shed it in order to join the guilty remnants this interchangeability you know it doesn't matter who reads what the fact that they are replaceable one with the other, which yeah. brings us back maybe to the replaceability or not of the baby Jesus. There's something in this anonymity that I read coded as feminine because there's this sense of sisterhood. We yeah. see this happening in relation to a husband. You know, Meg goes with Laurie because she knows it's going to be difficult for her husband to swallow this. So she, it, it's almost like she goes for moral support. One thing that I wasn't sure about and I'll be interested to know what you thought so Kevin says he are they making you do this do we think that this was pressure from the GR and if so is this related to the timing of this happening if we think about what their plans are for the next day I don't I don't read it in that way like I do believe that Laurie 
is actually doing this maybe especially because she's been feeling uncertain about her ties with her family and maybe she mm -hmm. wants to you know she wants some closure on that part of her life but he fell back a lot on the fact that she's still my wife right whereas this is the final nail in the coffin when he tells meg to to shut up and he grabs the envelope he sees that it's divorce papers and he turns to laurie and he says no like mm -hmm. you know i'm yeah. not accepting this and and laurie again laurie the actress that plays laurie also does a really good job with facial mm -hmm. expressions she looks so compassionate like she looks like she understands kevin's suffering she is suffering herself mm -hmm. uh, but this needs to be done and then kevin says you you know if you want this to happen i need you to fucking say it and i think maybe this is what hurts the most for Kevin, the fact that she's not putting the final words on this, she's not actually communicated this to him. And I, and I wonder if there's a similarity with, with the departure in a sense yes. in which, okay, I thought I was going to have to do a lot of work to, to get there, but it seems to be getting it. No, I thought the same thing, but I thought it was a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I get a sense that for him to be closure, he needs the words to be present in the same way that the people who have lost loved ones in the department, they need those fake bodies for closure. He needs those words to be said because otherwise it's this vague, unfinished thing, right? So like as Kevin is shouting and saying, if you want this over, then you fucking say it, fucking say it. Jill comes home. So she ignores Kevin and she walks past them, gives her mum uh, a wrapped gift from under the tree. Kevin's like, Jill, trying to talk to her. What I don't understand is how did none of them expect Jill to come home? It, it seems like Laurie is quite horrified at the fact that Jill is there. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe they thought they would only be there like 20 minutes. But, you know, maybe it's more a sign of people forgetting Jill, right? Maybe people, may, maybe this is part of Jill's frustration with things is that people are forgetting her and very much wrapped up in their own little stories. She feels left out and on the sidelines. Like, oh, fuck, sorry, Jill, I forgot about you. Which is where a lot of her frustration comes from. Yeah, that's that she's true. an afterthought, right? And and I think that must have must frustrate her too, right? When she comes home and her fucking mum's back. Her mum, who she's been wanting to come back for months and months and months. And they're all just suddenly really surprised that she's here in her own home. And she just picks up this gift, gives it to her mum and says, it's for you and walks out. And actually, the gift itself, a lighter saying, don't forget me. The lighter says, don't forget me. And they have literally forgotten about Jill. Poor Jill. We really were, I think we're we're making her character better by talking to her <laughs> in this in in this episode. Jill gives the present to Laurie and then leaves. And then Kevin says, I think you should go. So then we see Meg and Laurie outside. Meg says, I didn't know you had a daughter. And then yeah, uh Laurie opens the gift. It's this lighter that says, Don't forget me. And Meg says, You should keep that, I won't tell which I find very interesting, this dynamic between Meg and Laurie here. So Laurie immediately, which I feel like she feels herself wanting to keep it, she just goes up to a drain and just drops it in. Maybe something to talk about in the spoiler section. I feel like Laurie it is almost taking the guilty remnants more seriously than most of its members. <laughs> 
So back to Tom. Tom is dressed up as a Target cult member. He's got a, a Target on his head and he's got no shoes on. Uh, so he is in the hospital. So we assume that he's like visiting Christine to try to get her out again. Now that he's had his sign from Wayne Flash God and he, he wants to continue on with his, his task. He steps into the lift and there's a police officer who locks him down a bit and he's like, oh gosh, what's this? And the police officer looks at his shoes and says, do you know you're in a hospital? Tommy goes, oh, we, we don't believe in shoes, man. And the police officer says, how do you end up like this? And he says, I was abandoned by my father. I like the double meaning that ran on this. Like on the one hand, Tom is pretending to be the member of a cult who has turned yeah. to a cult because he's been abandoned by his father. But in reality, that yeah. is also what he's doing. <laughs> it's just yeah, a absolutely. Uh, and yeah. maybe he, you know, not not being over the trauma of being left by his father is a big factor in him seeking something in Wayne. I also thought at this point, which is something he says later, I like this idea, the irony of the bullseye and the guy saying before, this makes us, so it's the creative see us, but here Tom is using it to be invisible. So speaking of shoes, I, I wanted to nominate shoes as my motif of the week because this scene made me think of Tommy's daddy issues. And then the next scene we see Tom's baby shoes, um, where people do that creepy thing where they keep, what, why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> Just thinking back to the baby shoe bit. Exactly, exactly. And, and, uh, oh. So we see Tom's baby shoes, uh, which have been, what do they do? They encase them in metal to preserve them. It's called baby shoe bronzing. And it's shown in the, in the scene with Kevin. They've clearly done that with Tom. And his baby shoes, his bronzed baby shoes, are lying around in his room in Kevin's house. He gets asked why he's not wearing shoes, and then the next scene is his shoes. And the way that I want to read it is in terms of shoes equal abandonment. <laughs> so, yeah, why are you not wearing shoes? Because I've been abandoned by my dad. And then his baby shoes are in his room, and Kevin has gone to sleep in his room, which looks, you know, it looks fairly unfurnished. There's there's plenty of boxes. Like he clearly, as soon as they moved into the house, he went to college or he went on to his travels. He did something else. But there's all this mess in his room of his possessions. So Kevin, yeah. we see the baby shoes and then Kevin wakes up and he... Interesting. In Greek culture, empty shoes symbolized a death in the family. Well, empty shoes are creepy. Empty shoes are creepy. And, and then, so we had that scene in a previous episode with, uh, at the party where the twins found that single baby shoe and, and we yeah. made a kind of joke about that, that Hemingway short story, single baby shoes never worn, right? Shoes are being used here to signify loss and abandonment and specifically fatherhood. And then perhaps there's a thing about maybe your baby shoes are preserved and then you grow up and you no longer kind of belong to your father mm -hmm. in the same way, which may be how, you know, Kevin's reading of the situation. And then it ties in with, with Tom's daddy issues. Then the next thing that Kevin does when he's in Tom's room, when he wakes up, he goes to look at a photo 
of himself and Tom when he was a baby, was a kid, um, which is it's kind of pinned on a cork board, and then he takes it off, and it underneath it there is a photo of Laurie that turns out to be a folded photo that actually included Tom's dad, hidden real dad, like a thing that he you know he never got got over it clearly. He takes down the picture of himself and his son, right, uh, himself and Tom, and then he picks up the picture of Laurie unfolds it so that he sees that Tom's dad is there and then he angrily puts the picture of him and Tom back up there supporting like that relationship and that connection. So Kevin starts getting ready to go to the dance. He asks Jill how much she heard last night and she says fucking say it Laurie like just mimicking the last thing he said and she asks why was he here and then Kevin, in a completely Kevin manner, just says, oh, it's complicated. Just fucking tell her. All Jill wants is to be told things. And this could have been a nice moment of openness in which you could discuss the things that had happened. And maybe she would stop being so frustrated with you. She understandably says, let me know when it gets simple. And then there's a, there's a scene that I really liked, which will be discussed heavily in the spoiler zone. So Kevin opens the door and the twins are clearly, their plan is, was to put the baby so on the doorstep, but they get caught too early and he just actually catches one of them putting it down and then he tries to run away uh, and the other twin is driving the car. So they clumsily get into the car and go. So there is this scene where Kevin is picking up the baby Jesus from the doorstep looks puzzled and then Jill actually comes down and they look at each other and she seems surprised perhaps of course she would be surprised because the last thing she saw of it it was in the sea mm. so they must have gone back and got it I don't know if it's the sea I have the feeling it's more of a lake <laughs> I wonder whether it was Amy who went out and got yeah, it yeah I wonder so yeah then we have Tom is waking up on a bus and he hears Christine talking to some guy and I think <laughs> I like this because at this point we've gotten to know Tom's attitude so much that like even if he doesn't have time to tell her off and to disapprove and to tell her to stop talking to strangers like you know that's what he wants to do right <laughs> like just god like, let her just have a fucking chat come on this person this person is obviously in the army in some manner and his name is also Tom. This person is quite like chatty and friendly and is being nice to Christy. And there's maybe a bit of insinuation that maybe maybe they're getting on and maybe they're flirting a little bit. And just Tom seems really frustrated. And I thought that was interesting because obviously Tom fancied Christine a bit earlier on and, and liked her. But now because he's embodied this protect figure, he's not oh. allowing himself yeah, it's about controlling her now. I wonder whether he's this other Tom, is like the projection of what Tom wishes he could be. The soldier who is a symbol of being able to protect and look after people, but also someone who can be like friendly and funny and, and get on really well with Christine and maybe have some romantic connection with her. And I suppose it's again bringing up a question of uh, interchangeability, that Tom is potentially interchangeable with someone else. So at this point, the bus, breaks in a, in a very sudden manner. One thing that's interesting that I was reading about was the fact that they reshot most of this episode. So in the original idea of this episode, the other Tom, the soldier, 
was a key part of it and it was pretty much the Tom Christine storyline had him as a very key part and after it was shot and cut together Lindelof realised that they'd made a huge storytelling mistake in focusing too much on this other one-off guest and they scripted a new storyline for Tom and Christine I think originally it must have started from the the Tom and Christine storyline must have started from this bit I wonder if a lot of that stuff about Tom being a Joseph type figure and the potential parallels between Christine's baby and baby Jesus. I wonder if those would have been there in the earlier version. This is the text as we have it. So this is what we're going to talk about. <laughs> so they, the bus slams to a stop. They got the bus and there's a truck that was overturned and there are many bodies scattered on the floor that we see are departed dolls which have been foreshadowed multiple times in previous episodes Uh, they're wrapped in white blankets or body bags soldier tom says careful there tommy some sad idiot paid a fucking fortune just to bury that thing christine is walking through them and looking at them and she quite excitedly goes hey tom they're all in white it's just like the dream which is of course calling back to the earlier guy who talks about the dream he was having about Christine. She walks over the dead, they're all in white, which is an interesting subversion or, or like, you know, an, an interesting play of readings of, of, of signs and symbols and means and interpretations of dreams. We originally thought that it was about the guilty remnant. Christine thinks it's about these bodies. What does it really mean? Who knows? She's excited because she thinks that this is a sign that that she's special, that her baby is special, that Wayne was right, that Wayne is watching over them because the guy had this dream. Interesting though that she then ignores the whole dangerous part of that. <laughs> she just reads it as a positive thing and doesn't think like, hmm, why was he trying to kill me then? I was going to do my motive for the week. I was going to do doubling or doubles, but oh, like I did three last week, so I feel like that's really cheating. I mean... <laughs> You can do it, but you have to commit to choosing a number as your motif for the week for the rest of this week. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to do one next week. <laughs> <laughs> and then like 14. Oh, Damn and it. it will be revealed at the end that you've used all of the lost numbers and I haven't even no. <laughs> You can go with doubling. Can I go with doubling? Yeah, I mean, I just found that this idea of doubling. So we have, obviously, the doubling of the baby Jesus, of Tom in this second iteration of Tom that appears. The two storylines. Like, almost this idea of a changeling, right? That fear that you could be swapped out, uh, that fear that you can have a double made of you and it won't have any difference. And that desire from so many people to to fight against that, right? That Jill, oh, you you can't just get another one. The, the threat of replaceability. Yeah, Which is an interesting contrast to the Guilty Remnant, right? Who are very much about, we can all be replaced by each other. Yeah, we have Meg and Laurie doubling each other in that scene. I feel like all of your motifs are cheating and all of my <laughs> motifs are some minor detail that I pick out because I don't want to choose the obvious one. So we're <laughs> establishing a pattern for sure. <laughs> So at this point, we jump back to Kevin. He arrives at the dance. He leaves his, his officers in a, in a car park outside, like ready to execute the plan. He gets into the, they're, so they're having this fundraiser at the, yeah, at the high school. 
and Lucy, the mayor, is in the gym and she's making the speech. And then Kevin arrives and uh, he, so, so she goes like, oh, and a wonderful Chief Garvey, come up. And then he comes up and, and, and he announces that he's found the baby Jesus and no one gives a shit, which I thought was another really nice way of subverting this idea of the attribution of meaning. And yeah. clearly no one but the Garvey family cared about this baby Jesus. Everyone's been telling him how important it is for him to do this, and then he does it, and, and no one fucking cares. It's like this doll gets imbued with meaning, and then this symbol is just dissolved. It's, it's broken down. He, he does everything he thinks he's supposed to do, and then it just doesn't, it, it doesn't resolve to be anything. It doesn't mm-hmm. build to anything. It's an anticlimax. Yeah, I mean, the scene is just perfect awkwardness. Oh, I know you were all worried about this little guy. <laughs> well, I've and got also, him, and I'm going to personally return him. Yeah, because Lucy was the one who told him that, you know, that this was going to be a win, but it, it clearly wasn't. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then he, she's just like, oh, thank you, Chief Garvey. We're lucky to have you. <laughs> and like, oh, gosh, and I was just writhing on the couch. Uh, okay, so he walks off. And then Nora is sat on the floor in front of a locker. There's some cute and funny back and forth between them. Mm. She's like, what's up with the baby? And he's like, oh, it's, it's, it's not real. <laughs> and she's like, oh, well, yeah, I, I figured. He is treating her like a normal person because he hasn't recognized her yet. Mm-hmm. And she's teasing him. And he likes that, you know, she's not taking him seriously and, and he enjoys that. And they, they clearly have some kind of connection. And then she says, oh, this, this next locker, because she's leaning against the lockers. Um, this locker used to be my husband. And then Kevin realizes who she is. And you can see Nora, I think, being disappointed by this. Their fun flirting is over. She's the victim. She's back to her usual role. He's, he's very flustered. He's like, oh, I'm sorry about what happened to you. I find the phrasing that Kevin uses quite interesting here because he says, oh, I'm sorry about what happened to him, to you. And I'm thinking, who did the departure happen to? Did it mm. happen to the people who departed or did it happen to the people who were left behind? So I like little ambiguity here. So, so she says, I just found out he cheated on me. Kevin, a normal reaction to that <laughs> sentence, says, oh, I cheated on my wife. So several oh, interesting yeah. things. First of all, this is the first we hear of this from Kevin. Yeah. So we've seen a clip of him having sex with someone that may or may not be his wife. But then because the woman departs, and then we see that Laurie is still there. We assume that that someone who departed isn't Laurie. And so we can kind of assume that this is someone that he was sleeping with other than Laurie. The exchange continues and she asks why. And he, he kind of fumbles for an answer. And then he goes, is there a good answer to that question? And she says, I think I've just heard it. And I think this little exchange shows something between Kevin and Nora that they feel they don't pussyfoot around things they you know they're throwing each other these honesty curveballs uh and the other person is is responding in tone uh and I think they're liking that that they don't have to 
pretend, they don't have to perform, they can just be honest and the other person seems to appreciate that and, and find it refreshing. Especially in contrast to Kevin with everybody else in his life, but specifically Kevin with Jill. And he can't even tell her why there's a dead dog in the boot of his car, even though it's a really simple answer. So that's a nice little interaction. And then he walks off and she says, nice to meet you, Kevin. And then he leaves. Uh, And so now we're outside and Dennis comes up to him and says, we can't touch them. Talking about the guilty remnant. So the guilty remnant are here, but they're outside of the school property, right? And so Kevin, a little bit frustrated, he just starts storming over to them. And Dennis is like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, looks like they're on school property to me. It's our word against theirs. He's been towing the line and now he's stepping over the line, right? I don't think this is a sympathetic moment for Kevin. No, and especially not. because, you know, obviously it, it hasn't aged particularly well as mm, of 2020. Definitely not. And it's very clear that there is a power disparity, not yeah, only for sure. as we've discussed being set up by the feminine coding of the guilty remnants. Uh, and their passivity. There's this yep. side, you know, the guilty remnants are mostly women are shown, they are completely passive, they are non-violent. And then on the other hand, you have a man who and the police force mm-hmm. going to, to seize them. So it's a very yeah. uncomfortable um, power imbalance here. Yeah, absolutely. And that phrasing, it's our word against theirs, like it's just made just so much more uncomfortable maybe there is a sense in which Patty wants to reveal this in Kevin, this, this violent tendency that is already in Kevin. She wants to draw it out as Kevin tries to suppress it and tries to, mm-hmm. you know, be the good guy. Um, she wants to reveal to him that he's not a good guy. That, that people don't fit the idealized images that other people have of them. Our readings of these symbols whether they're religious spiritual symbols or whether they're symbols of the chief of police being this protector and person turned to in times of crisis actually they're they're being dissolved so kevin crosses the line here he goes and you rest patty he says you know i thought you were going to be a normal human being for one to not show up thanks for not letting me down and as he's putting her in the van she just looks at him and she just laughs and then she just sits back very comfortable not phase in the slightest and then kevin has this moment of almost realization where he's like where's everyone else kevin thinks that they've figured it out they've caught the guilty remnant but actually there's this double plan in which the rest of the gr are actually sneaking into people's homes and doing something not so good yeah so there's this montage of of the grs sneaking around the town going into people's houses they have these rubbish bags with them so, you, you know, obviously this is a very trusting town because it is very easy for them to break into mm. all of these houses, including ones that have sleeping children in them, which presumably means that the parents are home as well. Not quite clear how they can pull this off. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's something similar to, to the setup of the GR in the first episode as well, right? Like, they're set up to be like, oh God, what are they going to do? And... There's a few shots of them creeping around people's houses. And I remember when I was watching it for the first time, I was like, Jesus Christ, like, what are they going to do? They're being set up to be this potentially really violent group of people. Actually, what they do is they just take the photographs out of people's house. Mm-hmm. And so I remember feeling like a little bit of relief, like, oh gosh, like they're just taking photographs of the departed. 
and then be like, what the fuck? They're taking the photographs of the departed. That's so cruel. So they're leaving, they're mostly leaving all these empty frames everywhere. There's so much to be said here about the imagery of people departing from the photographs and the leaflet earlier. So everything that's important about you is inside and the inside is empty. And maybe we can draw a bit of symbolism here. Everything that is important about you is in the emptiness, which is the departed people. Yeah, the absence of the departed is the only thing that matters about any of us. About everything, right? And, and then this ties as well to Nora, right? And in, in, in the frustration she feels about the only thing that is seen to be mm. important about her is, is her loss. And, yeah. and she, her identity is constructed around this loss. And speaking of Nora, we have a reappearance of the swing picture, which I hope you got a chance to look at. Mm, yeah. Um, and we see Meg taking it from her fridge. And again, this is another instance of replacing, right? Even though it is, it's replacing with emptiness, but it's something is invested with meaning and it's yep. being replaced with something else. So they, they finished, they've got their photographs that they've taken out of people's houses. Uh, and as they're leaving, Laurie is with them and she's about to get in this van and she says, oh no, I'm going to walk back. Kevin is going to put the baby Jesus figure back. And as he's doing this, he sees someone leaning over the manger, dressed in dark clothes, looking a little bit dodgy. So he gets out, he's a little bit aggressive, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Turns out it's Matt. And Matt is carefully and lovingly putting this doll uh, into the manger. Matt says, I heard the baby went missing, I had a spare. Which is super interesting, because we've seen all the way through this episode, everyone imbuing this doll with meaning. And actually the most religious person in the show doesn't see that meaning at all. He knows it's a figure that just stands in for the image of Christ. He doesn't think that it is a sacred figure. I'm gonna throw this out there. Matt for MVP of the week. Hear me out. So Matt only appears in this one scene, but I feel like this scene ties together a lot of things. So Matt, by saying I had a spare, he is showing himself to be one of those people who are not afraid of this replaceability. And he, you know, as you said, he recognizes that it's not about the symbol, it's about the meaning, it's about investing the figure with meaning. It doesn't matter what it actually is. And and again, it shows this contrast between Kevin and, and Matt, where like Kevin is following the rules. He's following, okay, I need to put things in the proper place. Yeah. So, Baby Jesus is absent, got to return the baby Jesus. Whereas Matt is seeing the bigger picture. He's operating on a different level. I've been finding it difficult to, to, to formulate this, but Matt and Kevin are operating on very different levels here. Kevin is concerned with the nitty gritty day-to-day stuff. And Matt is looking at the bigger picture. And he's, he's in a way, he's open to change. He is open to being transformed by this new world and and Kevin yeah. is not Kevin is resisting change I love that I'm, I'm just gonna yeah Matt for MVP yeah <laughs> I mean it doesn't take much to convince me to make Matt MVP I just thought you know he deserved it two weeks in a row just because this scene <laughs> ties together this Jesus thing so and he just comes in and he just shatters with one gesture right. everything that Kevin has been built as his world of meaning during this episode and his idea of doing the right thing and his idea of doing things in the proper way so we we go back to 
Lori and she goes back to the gutter that she threw the lighter down. And there's just some really well shot scenes here. There's this imagery of her looking down that gutter and she can see the dirty lighter that you can just about read Don't Forget Me and it's submerged under some of like the dirt and then the, the grill is covering it like lines she can't get to it mm-hmm. and it's just this imagery and symbolism because she's stretching in to try and get this lighter and she's trying to grab it and she can't get it and I think this almost ties back as well to this imagery of how she she's broken and she can't spatially fit back into her past life yeah. she literally cannot fit into that grate to get this symbol of her previous family because mm-hmm. she, she's gone too far yeah, and I guess also she's put a, a barrier. She's yeah, spent yeah, yeah. this whole episode trying to put a barrier between herself yeah. and her family. And, like, it, it has not worked. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that this happens right after she has participated in this huge event that was meant to demonstrate the famous there is no family. Maybe she isn't quite as convinced as she's making out. So the last scene is Kevin is back to driving and the baby is in the seat next to him and he appears to be observing him almost like so what have we learned from all of this he just stops and he just chucks it out the window not only just the idea of jesus as a spiritual figure of the baby as a spiritual figure not meaning anything which was shown by matt but also this idea of the recovery of the baby jesus as a symbol of him doing well and succeeding and and being a win was also broken down. No one fucking cared about it in the end. He's just like, fuck it. <laughs> so what so, about a score then? So I was thinking I would give this one an eight. I was both... thinking exactly the same. Like, it's obviously not as good as the pilot or, or last episode, but I think it's better than episode two. Yeah, so I think an eight one, is it's fair mark. One mark above the last one. Uh, we were very much seeing this first season as you get the big episodes and the wheel spinning episodes. But actually this was, it was a lot more thematically cohesive than a wheel spinning episode. I would even maybe be be convinced to go to an 8.5. I feel like by the time we get to season three, it's, we're going to go into like the 11s and 12s. and. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to rethink this scale. Okay, I'm okay with an 8.5. Yeah, because it made sense to give certain episodes a 10. Yeah. But actually, I think other episodes would be more than a 10, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. they exceed a 10. That, it's perfectly logical to me. I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> right, okay. Um, uh, anything else to finish up with? I think that's it. Okay, so thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we will now be moving on to the spoiler zone. You want to give our email address in case people want to correct us on biblical symbolism once again? If anyone would like to correct us on biblical or shoe-based symbolism, <laughs> our email address is theleftoverthinkers at gmail.com. So now moving on to the spoiler zone. Let's start at the end. The removal of the pictures, because I was like, well, then what is their intention, right? They want people to remember. But then they're removing pictures from people that they can't remember. So how does that work with their ideas? And then I was thinking maybe it's something to do with this idea of ego, like there is no family, right? So it could be more along that lines. Or maybe it's just this idea of 
a reinterpretation of the departure just to cause people to, to feel the same emotions mm. that people felt the first time around so they had one departure and they're now feeling the effects of another departure as the memories of the people are taken away from them but then I also just think it might be setting up the final episode they're taking the photos to use those photos to create the dolls yeah actually you're right I forgot about that I probably had exactly the same thought the last time I rewatched this yeah. and then I got to the final episode and I'm like oh of course so yeah, yeah that's that's they, exactly what's happening I think on one hand it is it's supposed to be oh, okay god this is a bad thing that they're doing but then it's also a bigger storyline but I also think it still stands as a, a second departure they're saying oh the people are leaving their lives again they want yeah. to make you think that this is their big gesture and in a sense yeah. it is a gesture that makes sense within the context of its episode and mm-hmm. especially what Patty says at the start there is no family but actually what you don't know is that it's building up to an even bigger gesture yeah so let's talk about babies on front porches yes let's talk about babies so obviously a thing that we can't mention in the whole discussion of you know is is christine's baby the new christ is that obviously we know what happens to christine's baby she is delivered to the doorstep of kevin's house nora adopts her then christine takes her back in what i'm now starting to think is quite an interesting assertion of her will because mm-hmm. so many of her choices are and are being taken away from her yeah. in this episode and in this storyline with Tom the, the thing is nothing that bad comes from the baby what how is the baby the antichrist but I think it's it's the antichrist the same way that Kevin isn't Jesus I think these images and, and these symbols are being set up to be undermined and subverted it's like oh gosh what if it's the antichrist what if it's this evil figure and it's just not it's just it's just a baby the same way that Kevin is just a person Kevin is Kevin a is little a- bit Jesus Okay. He can do some stuff, but I don't think that makes him Jesus. Um, <laughs> Fair. Well, we can get we'll onto that. that. <laughs> Let's talk about Christine's baby because I was going to say it doesn't matter, but maybe. And I think she's called Lily. One thing I don't, I don't know how to get my head around this. I just thought it's such a shame that there's so many of these non-blood relative connections that are not allowed to flourish in a way, fall apart a little bit. You could see that Kevin and Tom's relationship is a successful one in the end. And Tom goes to Kevin to raise this baby, this new fatherless baby, because presumably because he trusts him to raise a fatherless baby. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like that. I was going to say that the baby doesn't matter, but, but I guess more accurately, she is, she is re-signified by characters. So yeah. just like the baby Jesus. And what I was thinking of was the scene where Kevin finds the baby Jesus on his doorstep. Mm-hmm. That is exactly the place where he finds Christine's baby. So I just felt like that was so much foreshadowing of that, like the way that he sees this baby and is like, oh, what is this? And because I never like, I never liked the implication that concluding the season with the baby arriving at the doorstep was some sort of resolution 
some sort of like, oh, it's all fine because there is a baby now. So hope is there again. But actually, I think this episode sets up that the baby just means whatever people need it to mean and, and is yeah. invested with meaning in that way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the baby itself represents something, but it, she is just able to be that for people that need a meaning. And I think that ties in with that first song as well, right? I'm not the one. But I think you're so right with this image of, of the baby as well before she's born and after she's born people imbuing it with meaning depending on what they want to see from it the yeah. same thing about these signs from god that people keep seeing and they're imbuing those things with meaning even if it might not be true because they're reading what they want to read from it yeah and maybe the baby at the end of the season is not a symbol of hope but it's a commentary on how people see a baby as a symbol of hope oh i like that that's nice I had something about when I said that Laurie seems to take the guilty remnants more seriously than... Oh, okay, yeah. It seems to me that Laurie is really clinging to these rules, the rules of the guilty remnants, like you can't speak, you have to smoke, you have to sever all bonds with your family. Like in this episode when Meg is like, you can keep it, I won't tell anyone. She's like, no, 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 but that would be wrong. And then in a later episode when Patty talks to her she's like oh my god can we even talk so I have the feeling that she's trying to cling to the rules perhaps because her faith in the ultimate principles is not that strong she's not that attached to the guilty remnants so she thinks that if Mm -hmm. she follows all the rules that will mean that she is committing but actually that's not what where the true commitment lies Interesting, because that's kind of what Kevin's doing as well, but to the old rules, trying to commit to the old rules, whereas Laurie's trying to commit to what she sees as the new rules of this guilty remnant. And they're both trying to, to find security in following those rules, but they both struggle and fail because yeah. they, they don't quite work the way that they interpret them to work. Because, you know, maybe as Matt shows us, the point is not to follow rules, the point is to improvise. The Mm -hmm. point is to be open to change your plan, is to be open to read signs and to just deal with things as they come, which requires a lot of, you know, losing your identity in various ways. And actually, Matt is the only one who's never insecure about his identity. And then Meg as well, when she becomes leader of the Guilty Remnants, clearly she's incorporated this idea of Following strict rules is not what this is about. Okay, so shall we say... That's it. Thanks for listening. Please drop us an email if you have any questions, suggestions or thoughts at theleftoverthinkers at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Yes. Bye. Or next episode. Whenever. We will see you next whenever.